This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey everyone out there, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. Thanks for tuning in and supporting our show. We really appreciate it. One massively fundamental question that has been asked by neuroscientists for decades is the same one that you've probably asked yourself if you've ever taken a standardized test. What exactly is a memory? In particular, scientists have wanted to know, what is the actual, physical component of a memory? And what are the ways that the brain encodes these memories? As it stands, one of the basic ideas about how memories are stored and retrieved has to do with the idea of patterns. For example, when you walk into a bakery and get your first delicious smell of bread, the aroma will trigger a unique pattern of neurons to activate. And then this pattern has a potential to activate stored memories that are related to the smell of bread. And the activation pattern related to the smell of bread would be very different from the activation pattern related to the smell of coffee, which in turn could activate totally different kinds of memories. Now, this idea has been supported indirectly for many years, but for scientists to be completely satisfied, they have been trying to develop ways to manipulate these patterns in order to directly support the idea, and this has turned out to be a very difficult task. How can you possibly pick out and manipulate the neurons involved with one memory when they are mixed in with so many others that are not? Well, luckily for us, I spoke today with a man who has developed some techniques for doing just that. His name is Dr. Bruce Hope, and he is a neuroscientist at the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Dr. Hope and his colleagues have created a variety of tools that allow them to selectively target patterns of neurons that are involved in a learning experience. During the interview, Dr. Hope will explain how these techniques are used, how the information gained from them can help us better understand things such as drug addiction and PTSD, and about some of the personality traits that it takes to make a great scientist. Hope you enjoy. Can you tell some of the overarching goals of the lab and some of the motivations to what you study? The overarching uh, goal of our lab is to understand the neuronal ensemble hypothesis by the neuronal ensemble hypothesis. I'm talking about an idea that started in 1949 by Donald Hebb, where he went and described how there were these cell assemblies in the brain that were specifically activated by particular cues and stimuli. And that uh, unique changes happened within these cells that could um, underlie the long-term memory that he was interested in. So for many years, uh, in vivo electrophysiologists have been looking at things very similar to this ensemble hypothesis, but they've been mostly correlations. So what we wanted to do was to be able to A, identify these neurons, to be able to manipulate them during behavior, to show a causal role for these ensembles in the behavior, and to be able to look at unique molecular changes or electrophysiological changes that we think are the basis for these long-term mechanisms underlying memories. To get to that, even that hypothesis, what were there like other ideas at the time that were competitive? What drove Donald Hebb to create this idea that certain experiences trigger unique activity levels that are different between different experiences? 
Right. Well, back then, uh, they most certainly didn't have like in vivo electrophysiology in 1949. This was based on a lot of um, rather old literature, okay, in one where in part it was due to gestalt psychology trying to explain very abstract concepts, how they placed in the brain, how they stored in the brain. Um, another component was uh, Lorendino's anatomy at the time where he showed that there was not these direct connections between this neuron to a specific neurons. It would actually go to a whole uh, set of different neurons and what appeared to be a random assortment. And so he tried figuring out based on this what kind of ways could a selected cues turn on particular neurons, activate particular um, axons from these neurons, which activate neurons downstream, okay? And the idea was that those neurons that are repeatedly activated would be the ones that would have unique alterations with them that would be allowed memories to be stored within those neurons and, uh, and not other neurons. The gestalt aspect um, is actually a rather interesting part of that story because he wanted to explain a whole host of things that couldn't be explained by a direct, um, like computer-like interaction, mm-hmm. and that these these sets of neurons that are being selected, these neural ensembles, are being um, start out as a, a, a random set of neurons, but they're because they're being selected by these stimuli-activated afferents. What appears to be a random pattern, okay, is repeatedly activated by these same stimuli and these same afferents to these uh, this particular pattern. So it wasn't that there was a, a nailed down specific concrete way of identifying these neurons. It's just even the most abstract things could be encoded within these these patterns of neurons. And that would it organize itself basically by it, 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 in that way? Yes, it would organize itself. I see. Everything has a code basically for mm-hmm. each each one of those memories. Would you be able to tell us you you use drug addiction as a model to study learning right. and memory? Could you tell us the the rationale between b- behind why you you use this? Mm-hmm. Certainly, um, I work with my uh, colleague Yvonne Shaham, and he has spent a lot of time as of has of others uh, looking at how the pairing of cues with taking drugs becomes a very important factor in uh, later on when the animal is exposed to certain cues that were previously associated with drugs. Now the animal's drug craving, as we imply from their behavior, their drug craving increases when they're exposed to these cues or these contexts. And um, But it's a specific cue or context in this situation. And it's not just any particular uh, environmental stimuli. And it's that specificity. So we were interested in that because there were, uh, in particular, drug addiction, because it's a very robust model that uh, resembles the human condition, mm-hmm. very much so. You know, an animal pressing a lever for a drug, in many ways, can resemble you know the, uh, a human taking drug as well. Mm-hmm. And many of the outcomes, behavioral outcomes, of of, of this. Um, is very similar to the human condition. Uh, their, the ability of cues or contexts to make an animal press a lever for a drug is similar to humans who are exposed to, say, certain party friends. Who uh, There are certain people they usually party with, and that immediately invokes certain habits. Mm-hmm. And those habits uh, are invoked by those party friends, those cues, part of that context. And that is why we use that kind of model. There's a lot of 
there's a lot of face validity for starters mm-hmm. behind it. And uh, that's why it was a really good way of looking at uh, a learning and memory. What are some of the, I guess, uh, social implications? Uh, what's the overarching maybe um, impact that you would hope to have that you and other researchers in this field? Well, that aspect, I mean, the, the behavioral component has been, you know, championed by quite a few people, you know, Howard Jaff and uh, also uh, Chuck O'Brien and, uh, and others. My, my part is just to be looking at the neural mechanisms that underlie that and see if um, indeed we can manipulate the ability that, say, that drug-related memory, that ability of that cue to remind an animal that this is a situation where I normally take drugs. If we can wipe out that memory selectively and not the other memories, kind of like the eternal sunshine and spotless mind idea, mm-hmm. that's the kind of the goal that we would be searching for. And it's not limited to taking drugs, of course. It's being able to PTSD, take out other you know, selective memories as well. I see, but understanding the exact way in which the brain codes those unique memories is the mystery right now. Precisely, yeah. And um, to in, in understand it is one, and of course people always ask, what's the, can you have some long-term effect uh, on the human behavior with this? And it's many steps removed, but yeah, there's several ideas we've come up with. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, could you tell us about the kinds of research that you've gone on to by, by using this ensemble approach? Like what are some of the concrete sort of steps forward your, you got, your lab is working on right now? Certainly, certainly. Um, well, right now we want to be able to um, manipulate the neurons that are selectively activated, but activate them or inhibit them under our control. So if we have a situation where we give an animal cues that are normally associated with taking drugs, we can actually have the ability to block the activation of just that pattern of neurons so that they know, even though they're exposed to that cues, those cues, they will not evoke that behavior. And we, we like to think that uh, they, we we're blocking drug craving under that circumstance, but of course that takes a lot of follow-up to prove that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's one thing, manipulating these ensembles. This, another thing that's very important to us is being able to look at very unique kinds of molecular changes that happen only in these neurons and not in the surrounding neurons. This is actually a big bulk of what we do. We use a technique called um, fluorescence-activated cell sorting, in which we're able to use um, fluorescent antibodies to identify these activated phospositive neurons and compare them to molecular changes that happen only in the negative, that is, non-activated neurons. So the sorts, basically, it's, those, yeah. Yeah, it sorts the activated from the non-activated That's a really, neurons. yeah, cool way yeah, to do it. Yeah, it is cool, and uh, I like to think so. And many of the genes that we see that are induced in these neurons, quite a lot of them are these immediate early genes, which usually get turned up in activated neurons. But the interesting thing is that these immediate early genes appear to be turned on only in these phospositive neurons, only the small 2 to 3% of neurons, and virtually no induction of these immediate early genes happen in the surrounding neurons, immediately surrounding these neurons. So many of the molecular changes that people have been looking at uh, in homogenates are really happening uniquely only in these phospositive neurons. The other thing I like to think about this is that many of these immediate early genes are by themselves transcription factors. Transcription factors are you know, proteins that are able to turn on other genes downstream. So you can imagine if you're inducing these transcription factors, these immediate early gene transcription factors, in only these neurons, there's subsequent ways of gene expression 
that are happening almost inevitably. And so we believe that we're looking at the very, you know, the initial stages of what's occurring within these activate, uniquely in these activated neurons to mediate whatever is necessary for memories to be encoded in these neurons and not the surrounding ones. You have this ability to sort, you know, the exact neurons that were active, which it seems like that was a big trouble in, in the past. So, mm -hmm. um, and you see that those, you know, those are the neurons that the changes are occurring. And so previously it was being like washed out by sort of exactly, just taking exactly. a bulk, you know, taking the entire sample when only a small component of them are the ones that are participating. Precisely. Yes. And in many cases, actually say with two of those immediate early gene, ARC and Homer, what we see is that uh, if you did, took a homogenate and, and, uh, from activated uh, brain area, you would see no uh, activation or no increases in these ARC or HOMER genes. Whereas if you look at uniquely at these FOSS positive neurons, you could see perfectly good uh, significant increases in these two genes. Um, in other genes, we find a tenfold greater increases in these genes that are being induced only in the FOSS positive neurons compared to if we were just looking in all the uh, in a homogenate to look for these genes there's only like two to three fold increases in homogenates where we're getting 20 to 30 fold increases in the mm -hmm. phospositive neurons i can see the advantage <clears throat> of like this is a huge step forward from before where you just have this maybe brain region and you're like what's going on in right. it now yeah. we can like actually take those apart is there do you see what's maybe the next step do you have some sort of what, what's a more ideal or something that you're working on that would uh, i guess even answer these questions Oh, you know, absolutely. More. What we need, and we have uh, found a means to do it, Good. <laughs> is a uh, new transgenic rat that we really needed. Okay, we Once we see these immediate early genes or some other genes induced within these activated neurons, what we didn't have was the ability to go back and artificially manipulate or block the induction of these particular genes to see what their role is in within those neurons, these activated neurons, to be able to dissect, properly dissect the causal roles of each of these genes and each of these electrophysiological or cellular changes within mm -hmm. these neurons. The CFOS um, Cree rat, as we call it, has the ability to uh, allow us to inject tetracycline about an hour before any cue exposure. Then we expose the animal either to drugs or some kind of cues or allow them to perform a particular behavioral task. And only during that window, about a two-hour window, only uh, it will be able to activate viruses, certain viruses that we injected a couple of weeks before, and turn on these doubly, these doubly, what we call doubly floxed genes. Okay, so only these genes would only be turned on in activated neuronal ensembles, these phosphoseptive activated neuronal ensembles. In this fashion, we can. Um, the virus can be any matter of things. It could be uh, silencer RNA. It could be overexpression of particular proteins, um, a whole variety of things. We can almost consider it like a bottleneck. It's the ability to insert any gene of our choice into these selectively activated neurons. And uh, it's a permanently turned on, so we can actually go back a month later and then reactivate and perhaps look at how um, FOSS uh, immune reactivity that's turned on during that second task. See it, how it interacts. Is it the same set of neurons? Or is it, if you change the cues, there should be a different set of neurons that induce this neural activity marker FOSS. And so we can look at systems neuroscience in that fashion too. So um, that's where we're going with that. The amount of control is, <laughs> is yeah. getting to an impressive level. 
it, it's it's definitely this to me is one of the rate limiting steps in it, in giving us the control that we need to do to answer causal role questions because this has always been the problem with ensembles. It's um, there's been brilliant people doing this, but almost entirely correlations. And now we have the ability to selectively ask some causal uh, questions about causal role mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Is it correlation or does it actually matter? <laughs> and that's where we uh, we're, that's where we're searching for. Wonderful. Um, could you tell us maybe a little bit about the the path that led you to what you study now? Mm -hmm. What what maybe got you into uh, learning and memory and sort of the thinking about how the brain encodes. Things like that. Well, I, I was, it's, it's like the eternal question about when you study the brain. It's, it's what the brain does. But when I... Uh, <laughs> Studies itself. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When I first got, uh, say, Eric Nessler's lab uh, as a postdoc at Yale back in 1990, uh, I, I, I thought I was going to do more learning and memory stuff. And at the time, people thought, say, things like CFOS, which were being induced with cocaine and other uh, drugs of abuse. Uh, at the time, people thought maybe it was involved in learning. So being, you know, the naive postdoc, I jump in and say, well, maybe it's, you know, we should be looking at learning and memory mechanisms. I didn't realize how difficult that would have been at that time. <laughs> but uh, so we didn't actually do the experiment at that time. What I did find while in Eric's lab was a protein called Delta Fos B that was gradually induced in neurons that were repeatedly activated, either by drugs or other kinds of uh, uh, perturbations of the brain. That was the theory, but we never proved it. We kept saying, okay, if we got Delta Fos B, it would gradually build up in these repeatedly activated neurons. But we had no way of showing that, how do, uh, do we really know if we're activating the same set of neurons? If we changed the stimuli, would we be activating a different set of neurons? And this is a question that I, I couldn't attack at that time whatsoever. <laughs> it was 1993, 94 at the time. And along comes uh, Guzowski and Bruce McNaughton's uh, and Carol Barnes's work. And they were looking at some overlapping... Um, genes, you know, the arc uh, in the nuclei and in the cytoplasm using their catfish technique and related techniques. And they were starting to answer some of these questions in the hippocampus. And, of course, I love their work, and I wanted to find a way to do that too. So I was finally able to do that Delta Fos B uh, study that I wanted to do. And so I would repeatedly inject cocaine to animals that, so that we would repeatedly induce Delta Fos B in those neurons that were induced every time we injected them with cocaine. And that at a later time, I could inject them either in the same environment or a different environment. And we would use the CFOS mRNA that we could see with insight hybridization. We would use CFOS mRNA as a marker for the acutely induced neurons. And then we would look at the overlap. If it's the same set of neurons being activated in the same context, we should see a high level of overlap, which we did. And if we put the animals, inject the animals on test day with a different, in a different context, a different environment, mm -hmm. then we should see less overlap between the Delta Fos B and the acutely activated CFOS mRNA. And we did. So we did see that. And that's similar to what Gazowski uh, with Bruce McNaughton and Carol Barnes had seen in the hippocampus with a different behavior. At that point in time, it was still correlations, and I wanted to show causal role. So what I did was um, use my biochemistry brain again. Is that your background too? Did it's biochemistry from... major, yeah, and then uh, mm -hmm. graduate molecular, you know, neurobiology. But I used that biochemistry part of my brain, figuring that I had, I knew there were such things as suicide substrates. But I figured if we had like a, a neuro neuron version of that suicide substrate, something that could be induced uniquely in in these activated neurons, 
driven by the CFOS promoter, which is turned on in these activated neurons. So I went back to an old mouse that I, uh, Eric Nessler had given to me uh, from Jim Morgan and Tom Curran. And he said, you know, do something good with this. And at the time, I didn't know what to do with it, to be honest. And so I didn't use it. So I went back to find that mouse. And I ended up finding a transgenic rat that had the CFOS promoter driving expression of the LAX-Z gene. And I knew it made the protein product beta-galactosidase. And then my next part of my search was to go out and find a tool. And then I knew cancer they have all these wonderful toys. And I went and found a prodrug for beta-galactosidase that does nothing. It's called Dono2. It really is inactive in the absence of beta-galactosidase, but it's catalyzed to another uh, drug called donorubicin, which has a long history of inactivating or otherwise sometimes killing cells. So if you put that prodrug together with the beta-galactosidase and it's only induced in these activated neurons, we should be killing only the activated neurons. Mm. That was the next step. And we'd shown that in a, in a number of cases. Um, it was really what it is. You have a question, you go out and search for the tools to do it. You know, you don't just have the tools and then go searching for a question. Mm. It's the other way around. It takes a lot longer, I'll give you that. Um, I had the benefit of dealing with some really good behavior people, like uh, Yuvin Shaham and Roy Wise. I'm really thankful for their their help, and Hans Krumbag in that, uh, for all that behavioral work. And then as far as the molecular work, I've always heard about fluorescence, you know, activated cell sorting. Wasn't sure how to deal with it at the beginning. And once again, I know I needed that to work because laser capture microdissection, this other technique we had been working with, wasn't working for us. Mm-hmm. So we used fluorescence activated cell sorting. Again, we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> Fortunately, I had a very good MD-PhD uh, graduate student, Daniel Gez, now Daniel Barber, and uh, she's one of these very, you know, ambitious MD-PhD students, and uh, she took on the project. So initially, uh, she, we would uh, figure out how to dissect the brain tissue into single neurons, because that's required for facts, and that requires, you could say, the tenderizing the tissue with uh, some enzyme. And then use these pipettes with smaller and smaller diameters to sucking them in and out to be able to dissociate them without blowing the heck out of them. Okay, which is mostly what we got. We both mostly blew up uh, our neurons. We finally found a lot way of, of fun doing it. Nights. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of grief, basically. Yeah. A lot of grief. And um, then it was a trick of being able to uh, label them sufficiently with antibodies and looking and. In, in flow cytometry, what we call scattergrams. When we showed it to this, uh, the first time to one of these flow cytometry ac- experts who dealt with, you know, cell culture, you know, immunology, like white blood cells, and also uh, cancer cells, he's looking at this scattergram and saying, I, what the heck is this? Because dissociated neurons look very different from all those other cell, uh, scattergrams from all those other cell types. And so it took us a long while to figure out where the neurons are because if you dissociate, you've got tens of thousands of events. Only a small portion of them are the cell bodies that you're interested in. Anyways, Daniel worked that out and she managed to extract RNA and show very selective gene expression from, say, neurons versus glia. And she also used the FOS antibody to find out the very unique changes that were happening in the FOS positive, that is, the neurons that were activated during behavior. 
those phosphospositive neurons versus the majority of neurons that are phosphonegative, the ones that were not activated during behavior. And that basically, we were using a simple behavior and we kept on going with that. And uh, electrophysiology, it was just, once again, we had to look for a tool. Allison Barth had this wonderful uh, mouse. It was a CFOS promoter that drives expression of the green fluorescent protein, GFP. And uh, this allowed us to identify neurons that were activated during behavior, but look at them two to six hours later in a slice that people could uh, use to use electrodes to um, analyze the electrophysiological <coughs> properties that were unique to these activated neurons as opposed to all the sur neurons surrounding them. And yet again, we found very unique changes within these neurons. So we kept finding over and over again that these neurons are react to cues and drugs for that matter in very, very unique ways. So at least we weren't barking up a very boring tree. <laughs> so um, it sounds like you have, you know, collaborations or at least like connections to people that have very diverse, it sounds like immunology, electrophysiology. Do you think that that is really the way that you like to think about things? You don't like to looking like, is it that the question and the tools drive you to try to answer that? Yeah, it's exactly that. Mm -hmm. I have a question. Yeah. And uh, like I said, it's the learning and memory. What mm -hmm. are the actual mechanisms? The ones that people had suggested before were never quite satisfying. And the ensemble hypothesis was the only one that seemed reasonable to me. And so th there weren't enough tools. And that's what drove me to invent all these tools because I had a question that I want to analyze. I want to analyze, you know, be able to manipulate them during behavior, being able to actually see these cells and how they, the patterns change during when you expose the animals to different cues. So basically you had to start, I had to start from scratch and all of these things. I went with the very basic assumption that at least behavior is mediated by neuron, neural activity. I wasn't going to accept anybody else's hypothesis other than say the ensemble hypothesis at the time. And my marker for activity was FOSS. With that, those two assumptions, all the other techniques fell in line because they were all driven by the CFOS promoter. And uh, so it, it's basically finding the tools that are out there lying around. They, sometimes they've never been made. Sometimes they were just used in different fields. So you have to talk to the cancer people. You have to talk. To I guess all. I was going to ask, how do you build a team like that to you know address it? I got lucky. <laughs> Luck is a big thing in science. It's huge. Um, I've had some... I, I like to dream, okay? And I always tell myself, well, if I was going to uh, do a particular project, how would I do it? And conceptually, I know how I'm going to do it. Then I know the pieces that I'm looking for. So I search. It's, it's a beautiful world with internet, you know? <laughs> you can find these pieces. Now I know basically how I think I can make this uh, technique work. But everybody can have thought experiments. What it takes is somebody who's smart enough to make it happen. I got very lucky with uh, several people, but in particular, Asuke Koya, who was my postdoc at the time. And he is, he's like most neuroscientists or most scientists in general. They have some kind of OCD thing that even in the face of repeated failure, they keep on going. That's uh, one of the traits of a scientist, if you ask me. <laughs> and um, so... He developed, uh, with me, he developed the, the Dono 2 approach. And if it wasn't for his persistence and uh, constantly asking questions over and over again, that would never have happened because I think, um, I think in many cases, a lot of people would have given up. He didn't, and that was good. 
Daniela got lucky again. Daniel um, gets what she did was she uh, persisted again in the, in the face of a lot of failure. <laughs> it was mostly failure, especially in the first while. But uh, as anybody will tell you, she's very persistent. Um, and then uh, with the CFOS GFP, yet again, uh, it was Asa K. Koi who did that one. He uh, found out he was allergic, so he wanted to do more electrophysiology than behavior work. And he persisted again, and there was a heck of a lot of failures. We tried a bunch of different techniques and before we found the one that worked. This is inspirational for both me, who fails very often, yeah. and for everyone else that... <laughs> Absolutely. There's, if you're given the time, and you know you have the time, then keep persisting. You have to, I mean, eventually you have to know when it's time to <laughs> yeah. cut off. But uh, it's important to keep on going. Um, I once, um, when I started out as a graduate student, it was my first year, and I was working, you know, from basically 12 o'clock to about you know, 2 or 3 in the morning. And there was this guy named John Okuski at UBC, University of British Columbia in Vancouver, where I uh, did my grad school. Anyways, he uh, would always have pizza, so I would show up at his door at 2 <laughs> o'clock in the morning. And um, I said, darn it, I, uh, I find most, like a third of my experiments work and the other two-thirds don't. And he goes, that good? <laughs> and I was first, okay, okay, well, really, it's... So basically, it gave me the first clue that a lot of what I do is failure, and a lot of uh, getting by it is just being persistent. Mm -hmm. The trick, as I say, is knowing when to draw the line. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate talking with you, Bruce. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.